0: <coughs> Tonight's talk is on Buddhist Romanticism, and it's not a theory of Vipassana Romances. Okay? It's, um, it's more on themes from European Romanticism that influence the way we come to Buddhism, kind of the assumptions that we bring as we come to the Dharma. And I think it's important that we examine these assumptions. This is not an abstract or academic topic. When we come here, we have these unexamined assumptions. If they remain unexamined, they were going to influence the way we take in the dharma, understand the dharma, practice the dharma. We have to look in them to see if there's any way that they limit the way that we're going to gain benefits from the dharma, from our own practice. And so I think it's important that we take a look at these assumptions and sort of take them apart and try to look at them as a stranger might look at them. For me, one of the advantages of going to Thailand for my training was getting a totally different picture on the training of the mind, what religion is about, what the practice of the Dharma is all about. And simple little things from just, I remember one time I was talking to my teacher about, after having lived some of this ascetic life that Gil was talking about, one meal a day, and. Um, celibate life and talking to my teacher about the needs of the body. He looked at me and said, what, what does the body need? I said, well, of course, you know, it needs food, it needs shelter, it needs sex, it needs all these other things. And, um, he says, you know, the body doesn't need those things. The mind may need them, but the body doesn't. And the body's perfectly willing to die and go without all these other things. And that opened my mind to a whole new, <laughs> new way of thinking. Another time in, during the cold season in Thailand, the wind started coming down and, uh, Actually, it was a season of, it felt a little cold after having been in Thailand a couple of years. And I started thinking of Christmas and all the things I missed about Christmas back home. And I happened to mention this to him. And his first comment was, yes, every culture has its stupid customs, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and then he proceeded to talk about some Chinese customs that, were, that he thought were similar to our ideas about Christmas. And by the time he was done, really, yeah, it was a stupid custom. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's good to look at our assumptions get things stirred up so that we can see parts of our minds that we tend to close off. If you stay in one culture or with one group of assumptions, it's like everybody has the same blind spot. And since we all share the same blind spot, we can't point them out to each other. So it's good to try to look at our blind spot. The blind spot I'd like to look at tonight is exactly what are some of the assumptions we bring to the Dharma, our assumptions about what practice is about, what religious life is all about. Um, and I was interested to discover how much the thought of the Romantics has influenced the way Americans nowadays still think about religious life. A lot of this influence has come to us through psychology of religion. We often hear about how much the way the dharmas are presented, especially in the Bay Area, um, influenced through American psychology. And the question is exactly what are some of these influences, where do they come from? And they actually come from three areas in the religious or tradition of the West. One is from the Enlightenment thought of the 18th century. Secondly, is from the Romantics of the 19th century. And thirdly, this may be a surprise to you, is from Methodism. Um, Methodism, which most of us think of as kind of vanilla in American religious life. It's kind of there in the background. It doesn't really seem to have much of an influence. But I was interested to discover that According to religious historians, the 19th century in America was the century of Methodism. So the Methodist movement came into America, and even people who didn't become Methodists themselves began to pick up Methodist ideas, specifically the idea that religion is more about feeling than about theories or doctrines, that if you have the proper feeling tone in your relationship, as they would say, to God or to Jesus, the proper piety, that was what mattered. It didn't matter whether you had the right view on predestination or not predestination, or the Trinity or any of these other more abstract doctrines. He was having the right, right attitude. So for them, religion was an area of feeling. In fact, for all three of these traditions we're talking about, the Enlightenment, the Romantics, and the methodists religion was primarily an affair of feeling and not so much of objective truths. Now, the, one the Enlightenment people were talking about religion as an aspect of feeling they were trying to denigrate it. They said religion is just about feelings. Real, real knowledge comes from science. It was their way of putting religion down. For the Romantics and the Methodists, however, to talk about religion as a realm of feeling for them was to bring it up to a higher level, something beyond and above just what they would see as mere scientific facts. In the case of the Romantics, they were drawing on the thought of Kant, which said that it's through aesthetic feeling and aesthetic creation that we reach our highest as human beings it's, it's, this, habit, this is when we're most human uh, Schiller the, whom you probably know best for the Ode to Joy in Beethoven's Ninth Symphony um, said specifically this it's through what he called the play drive the aesthetic play drive that we become most human either otherwise we're just you know, subject to our material or physical needs on the one hand or to the dictates of the laws of reason in either case we're not free Reason, reason forces us to act in certain ways. Our physical needs force us to act in other ways. And it's only when we can rise above those through aesthetic play, through the act of creation, that we become complete human beings. And it, this act of creativity, the aesthetic feeling that comes from this, is our highest, uh, is our highest expression. Schiller had a friend whose name was Schleiermarker. With a Schiller, Schiller, Schleiermacher, Schelling, Schelling, it was a whole, whole pile of them. <laughs> and Schleiermacher was he, was, he was raised in the, the Moravian church, the, Dutch, uh, the German Reformed church, which was a pietist church, very much like the Methodists. And he was concerned that as the enlightenment came into Germany, that people were going to be turned away from religion. And so he decided, he came up with the theory that religion is actually the highest form of aesthetic creation. That you have, in fact, he called religion was the taste and feeling for the infinite, which puts it in the aesthetic realm. And you have this feeling of the infinite that you begin with. You create a religion out of that to express your feeling, both to yourself and to others. And in the course of doing this, you try to integrate your personality into a whole. I'm going to read a few of his, uh, few of his, quotes from him here, and you tweak the language a little bit, and it doesn't sound all that foreign. Where is religion chiefly to be sought where the living contact of a human being with the world fashions itself as feeling? Truly religious people are tolerant of different translations of this feeling, even the hesitation of atheism. Not to have the deity immediate present in one's feelings has always seemed to them more irreligious than such a hesitation. To insist on one particular conception of the deity to be true is far from religion. Nothing is more unchristian than to seek uniformity in religion." Um, The individual is not just part of the whole, but an exhibition of it. The mind, like the universe, is creative, not just receptive. Whoever has learned to be more than himself knows that he loses little when he loses himself. Rather than align themselves with a belief in personal immortality after death, the truly religious would prefer to strive to annihilate their personality and to live in the one and in the all. Sounds very much like interconnectedness. And in fact, that was a um, romantic doctrine. Schiller's thoughts w- were very popular during the Romantic period. In fact, the, as the, most of his Romantic friends who tend to be more atheistic said, hey, this is our, our justification for having whatever religion we want to create for ourselves. Um, Schallermacher himself was more conservative of that, and later years he tried to retract a lot of what he had said. But the cow was out of the barn, basically. He <laughs> couldn't stop this, and people were creating their own religions and saying that this, this is the highest aesthetic form that we can have. And in doing this two things happen. One is that we overcome the divisions within ourselves. The the, the Romantics had a very strong sense that our self is divided, either between reason and um, sort of the more sensual needs. They divide it, they, they analyze the sense of division in different ways, but it basically comes down to people suffer because they have this divided sense of the self. They will stop suffering when their sense of self is more integrated. Once they get more sort of integrated within themselves, that not only makes themselves more whole, but it also helps get them in touch with and more interconnected with everybody around them. Not just other people, but nature as a whole. Um, So interconnectedness is a good thing in that that's the end of suffering. Um, They also had the belief that this was an unending process, that you could never achieve complete, perfect interconnectedness, but you could always keep at it. And it was in the process rather than trying to get to a perfect goal. You know, the path is the goal for them. It's in the process that this um, fulfillment can be found. Um, Keats, <coughs> drawing on the on the romantics, developed their, some of their um, assumptions in the term that he called negative capability. If you've studied literature, you've probably heard of this. It's the idea that the truly mature person is one who doesn't have to have certainties all the time. that is willing to live with mysteries and uncertainties and feel okay about it. You can function in all sorts of kind of levels with a sense of spontaneity, a sense of fluidity. Again, you've heard these themes many, many times. This is where they come from. They come from the romantics. These thoughts were transmitted to modern religious life through the thoughts of the psychologists of religion. And I'd like to focus tonight on three particular people for the way that they've brought these thoughts into our into modern world. Because once, once this becomes sort of enshrined as psychology, it becomes scientific, right? <laughs> but it's, it's this contradictory part of their psychology, of religion that gives its authority. On the one hand, it can claim objectivity. Psychologists of religion draw on the teachings of many traditions all across the world. And for that way, they seem to have more authority than a particular tradition that comes from one particular culture or one particular background. Yet, at the same time, most of their categories, most of the ways they analyze things come from our Western background. So they sound familiar. They make sense to us in a kind of an intuitive way without even realizing what they've been saying. First person I'd like to draw, uh, talk about is William James, his Varieties of Religious Experience. Now James wrote this in 1902, and it was an amazing document in its time in that he would bring in not only Religious experiences from Christian, different Christian traditions, but also from Buddhism and Hinduism, and also from what was called back in the nineteenth century the religion of mental culture, which was kind of the new age of the nineteenth century. We think the new age is new, think they were doing it back in the nineteenth century. The same very same theories, um, and bringing them, putting them all on the table as equals. Now, just in that, in and of itself, was an amazing thing back in nineteen two. On top of that, when, when at the very end of the book he says of all the various religious teachings that he finds makes sense to him, he says the Buddhist doctrine of karma makes a lot of sense. That was, someone said that was probably just to shock his audience, but I think it was serious. <laughs> but in, doing, in, in, in spite of the fact that he was such a broad-minded person, and James is one of those people who passes the Holden Caulfield test for a good author. Do you know that test? If you finish reading a book and you want to pick up the phone and talk to the author... <laughs> just have a good long talk and chat things out. James is a really nice person. He comes across very personable, and so it's um, his, the breadth of his interest is, covers up the fact that he adopts a lot of um, sort of reductionist things from reductionist themes from the Western tradition. One is that from the Methodists, he borrows the idea that religious experiences come in two flavors: one is what one is conversion and the second is what the Methodists call sanctification. Basically, conversion is when, for the Methodists is when the soul sort of converts itself into, God, into being united with God's will for the very first time. It tends to be a dramatic experience. Sanctification is something that's a little bit more subdued. It's that you live your whole life kind of surrounded by this sense of God's presence and in alignment with God's will. Now, James secularizes this dichotomy a little bit by saying that, okay, um, conversion experiences basically are similar to any kind of integration experiences that all all of us go through in adolescence. We have that sense of our divided selves, you know, our little kid and then the adult and all the other divisions that we have problems with as we go through adolescence. And when we finally kind of work out a unification, and there sometimes tend to be moments either sort of a gradual sense of integration or a a more dramatic one, for him that's what conversion is all about. So conversion is this sense of the unification of the self. Um, sanctification is when that these conversion experiences make you a better person in the sense of being a better functional human being. So he divides these experiences into healthy and unhealthy. And James has a lot of fun. He draws all of his unhealthy ex- examples from the Catholic Church. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite one was this nun in France who, um, after her... First, conversion experience tended to keep having them all at the wrong time in the wrong places. You know, They put her in the infirmary to help with the, the sick and she just got in the way all the time. Um, they put her in the kitchen and she was dropping all the, um, the serving dishes as Jesus entered her at inopportune moments. Um, so they didn't know what to do with her so they put her in the school and she would go into these trances in the middle of her lessons. And the little girls would come up and they would cut off pieces of her habit to take home. <laughs> as relics and James has a lot of fun with this but there is this reductionism that James says okay the there are only two types of religious experience and then secondly if you want to judge the quality of these religious experiences it has to be in this worldly terms do you become a better functioning human being in daily life as a result of having these experiences he says you can't, if you look at the theories that come out of religious experiences, you can't take them as, the fact that they, people have had these experiences, you can't take them as proof that the theories that come out of them are true. Um, he notes that for many people, the conversion experiences often give a sense of wholeness, oneness, the perfection of the, of the world, the interconnectedness of everything. And he says that's not, you, know, you can't use that as proof that these things are true. The only facts that you can look at are the fact that people have these feelings. You know, whether these feelings mean anything or not, he says that's ir- irrelevant. What mean, what's meaningful is once you have these feelings, do they make you a better person? And you measure that in this worldly terms. So even though James has a very broad acceptance of religious experience all over the world, he tends to reduce things to these terms. There are two types of experiences. They're healthy and unhealthy based on whether they make you a more integrated person, more functional in human society. James' idea of functional included being an extremely moral person. He himself had a taste for what he called the strenuous mood, which meant that you really wanted to try hard to be a good person. Other writers on psychology of religion didn't quite have that same impulse. Jung, uh, Carl Jung in his Modern Man in Search of a Soul, his main input into the psychology of religion is he draws more heavily on Schiller in the sense that, okay, the highest expression of human beings is in the play drive. The most important thing is the ability to have this sense of spontaneity, this sense of fluidity as you have this more integrated personality and you continue integrating it through life. Again, he, like James, felt that this was one of these processes that never ended. You just kept doing it through life and the process was what was meaningful rather than trying to get the product of being a perfect human being at the end. Jung himself was not all that moral. A person apparently slept with a couple of his clients. And he, had a, he railed very strongly against any religious doctrine which got in the way of your fluidity and spontaneity. In this, he was an inspiration to the Gestalt therapists who set up their camp down in Esalen, down the coast down here, and had a lot of influence on American religious life as well. A third religious psychologist I'd like to talk about, in addition to James and Jung, is Abraham Maslow. In his book on religions... That's religions, Peak Experiences, and Values. I get the names mixed up just the way I get ecstasy and laundry mixed up. Um,
1: <laughs>
0: I've always wanted to call it Doing Laundry on Ecstasy, but I, I do wrong. <laughs> the thing is, they're the same two books. You, know? you read Jack Cornfield's book, you go back and read Abraham Maslow. Jack is basically telling you what Abraham Mas- Maslow told us you know, 30 years ago which is that there are two types of religious experiences. The peak experience, it's like a kind of a graph over time. It has a dramatic peak and then it comes back down again. And there's a feeling of oneness, wholeness, spontaneity, fluidity, has a long series of um, descriptions here. And then there are plateau experiences where, where it's more integrated in the personality. You can maintain this sense of oneness, this sense of unity over time in all aspects of life. Maslow tends to denigrate peak experiences. He says, you know, they're, they're dramatic, but they don't really make that permanent or healthier change in the human being necessarily. That requires more sense, uh, process of counseling, therapy, um, sort of the integration of the personality that comes through education of various sorts. Um, secondly, he says that of all the religious experiences in the world, the only thing that really matters is what they all have in common. The differences are immaterial. They're um, a product of cultural biases. You know, For instance, when the Buddha says he gained an insight into karma, well, that's very interesting, but other people have similar experiences and they don't talk about karma. So let's cut out karma as beyond scientific. So what you get at the end is, is the peakiness and the plateau-ness of the experiences. That's what's scientifically interesting for, for Maslow. Everything else he tends to denigrate So given these three um, people who've had a huge influence on psychology of religion, I mean, most other psychologists of religion can draw their influence from one of these three, you get, you get the general picture. Okay, there are basically two kinds of experience. Um, what's of interest is what the experiences have in common with each other. Everything else is kind of a cultural or personal um, a matter of taste, a matter of how you creatively react to that particular experience, but in and of itself it's not particularly scientific. What's important is the experience, the feeling tone of the experience is what matters above everything else. Secondly, all of them agree that religion is healthy when it creates a sense of personal unification. The divided soul becomes unified. The sense of oneness, you integrate the personality there is no such thing as perfection at the end of the religious life. You get the integrated personality and the healthy integrated personality is one that can continue taking in new experiences and continue integrating them, but they never reach a point of perfection. This is best expressed, um, can be measured in this worldly terms. I mean, I go into sort of some of the more esoteric or metaphysical ideas, but you know, is this person more functional in society? That's a test of a true, truly good religious experience. And so when you look at this, the sort of general picture here, and then you look at the way Buddhism is taught in the West, you see a lot of similarities. We don't have the experience, we don't get into, a lot of us come to meditation wanting the experience. And then once the experience has first had sort of the more dramatic experiences, we're going to be able to integrate that into our daily lives so that we can be better functioning human beings. Um, the feeling tone is important. We tend to re- look at Buddhist teachings outside of that particular experience, a sort of cultural baggage that came over of the Pacific, but we can drop it if we find that it doesn't fit into our American culture. Secondly, that sense of what Kate Keats called the negative capability, the ability to not worry about sort of larger metaphysical issues. It's okay if we can continue functioning in the world with a sense of balance, a sense of fluidity. Um, it's amazing how many times I've been reading through different books on, modern books on Buddhism, how much they talk about the dance of life. And the image there is quite fluidity, grace, um, sort of a free form kind of dance. It's, there's no strict strictures that are being placed on you. Now the question is, does this picture really do justice to what's coming over in the Buddha's teachings? When we look at the aim of religious life or the aim of our practice, whether we want to call it religious or not, as overcoming the divisions in the self, is that enough or is there more? And the Buddha says that there is, in classical Theravada doctrine, says, okay, nirvana is attainable. It is an end to the practice um, it 's more than just getting a sense of divided self in fact they, they don 't even talk in terms of self and the, the, the classical tradition either talks about saying that there is no self or at or saying that we just don't ask that question it 's one of these irrelevant questions so i'd just like to throw out the question when we bring these assumptions and it 's good for us to sort of examine these assumptions, we should take those and then compare them to what um some of the traditional teachings and say are the traditional teachings actually saying something less than we think they are they say something more? Are they sort of raising the bar for us saying well, once you've got this sense of self that's been integrated, is there more? And the Buddha traditionally said yes, So I mean, we've got it integrated itself but that doesn't end suffering. There's more that has to be done, that things have to be dug out of the personality in terms of other forms of ignorance and other forms of craving and that there is a goal at the end. So it's, I think it's important that we look at what assumptions we're bringing and realize that these are our assumptions. That we may decide that we actually like these assumptions and these are the, this, is how, this is how we're going to approach our practice. But it's best that we examine them, to look at them, to see exactly where they're coming from, what possible limitations they might be placing on us as we approach the Dharma. Those were my thoughts on the topic. Are there any questions? <laughs> That's the L I T E version of that talk. Let me tell you. <laughs> Otherwise, I could have thrown lots of quotes at you. Yes, go ahead. Where do Emerson and all those folks fit into this, you know, They were pretty much with the Romantics. On oh, this, yes. I mean, I can read little Emerson to you. Um, Here we go. The reason why the world lacks unity is because man, of course he's speaking sexistly here, uh, because man is disunited with himself. And women are disunited with themselves too. We live in succession, in division, in parts, in particles. Meanwhile, within us is the soul of the whole, the wise, silence, the universal beauty to which every part and particle is equally related, the eternal one. And this deep power in which we exist and whose beatitude is accessible to all of us is not only self-sufficing and perfect in every hour, but the act of seeing and the thing seen, the seer and the spectacle, the subject and object, are one. And doesn't that sound like a Dharma talk? <laughs> 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 but the Dharma talks come from Emerson. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the, Rick, Rick Fields, in his book How the Swans Came to Lake, likes to talk about Buddhist influences on Emerson and Thoreau and the other transcendentalists. When you look at their thought though, actually they had come up with all their religious ideas beforehand. And then they went to into Buddhism and kind of pilfered what they could find that fit in with their, their ideas. And so the influence seems to be more that they found that you know Buddhism was useful for supporting some of their pre existing theories, rather than any influence of Buddhism on them, per se. Yes? How did
1: this topic of inquiry come up on you? That's a very interesting Fantastic. Very much of them also kind of curious. to uh, such an esoteric endeavor that you must have really had some stroke of inspiration.
0: Or well, actually, I owe it to somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> um, have you ever read the book Buddhism in America by Richard Seeger? No. Um, <clears throat> his background is in religious Amer- American religious history, and he was saying to me one time he, he came to talk, he interviewed me for the book, and he was mentioning that. Um, from his point of view, American Buddhism has a lot more to do with romanticism than with anything else. But he didn't, he had never sort of you know, gone into the, the details, so I, I decided to explore it a little bit, and there seemed to be a lot there. Yes.
1: You describe the interface mm-hmm. between the kind of, of Western philosophy. Mm-hmm.
0: I don't see one core to Western philosophy. I see a lot of people coming with a lot of different questions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What you is more portion of philosophy. particular themes within Western philosophy that tend to converge right here. If, you know, in Theravada, the question of um, sort of the oneness of everything is not a question. The Buddha, at one time, said you know, there are three basic beliefs. There's there's everything is one, everything is not one, and I forgot what the third one was. But it kind of covers up the, you know it sort of clears up whatever piece, pieces are remaining. And he says, you know, all of those are totally useless doctrines. They don't put an end to suffering. They get people involved in all kinds of discussions and, and, and controversies. But they sort of pull you away from what he thought was the immediate question: it was go Why are we suffering? Is there something we can do about it? Um, I think one of the greatest contrasts between the Dharma and this, what I would say, sort of the romantic point of view, is um, in the view of interconnectedness. I mean, for the Romantics, interconnectedness is a good thing, capital letters. And you can understand, you know, where, especially where the German Romantics were coming from, and their problem was is the Germans having a problem because back in those days it was, all, it was a disdivided country. They couldn't get their act together. Of course, we saw what happened when they did get their act together in 1914. But um, for them, the sense of division was really a cause of suffering. Schiller was also, he was a very perceptive person. He said, the problem in modern life is that people are fragmented. This is very much an issue in modern life. And And I think this also relates to why these theories from 200 years ago tend to still have currency for all of us. There's a book by um, William Cronin, who's an environmental historian, uh, called Nature's Metropolis. It's his study of Chicago in relationship to its environment. He says you you can't really understand a city unless you understand, okay, where is the raw material coming from? And even back in the early days of, say, the industrial movement, the sense that... People had was that our dependence on the rest of the world is getting more and more and more extensive, but it's more and more hidden from us. I mean, you go down. Well, I was reading in the Nation a while back, sort of the the, the, the story of a Gap T-shirt. <laughs> if you go down to the Gap, you buy a T-shirt. Where does that T-shirt come from? It starts out as cotton in Uzbekistan, and in its in its travels, it tends to go. It goes through Iran for some reason. Um, South Korea, and a few other assorted countries before it finally ends up in that warehouse over in Kentucky, and then from Kentucky it gets shipped here, and that's just a, you know, that's just a T-shirt. And all our things are you know, all the things around us come from all kinds of places, and yet we really don't know where. And from and when you start thinking about it, there's a sense of insecurity that comes with us. You know, how can we trust all these people to continue working together? This fabric that we're so dependent on is so tenuous and so uncertain that we really like to hear that, okay, Internet connectedness is a good thing. It's the basic principle of the universe. Um. <laughs> you can rely on Gap to get that T-shirt to you the next time you need one. I mean, it's <laughs> and so it's not just, you know you know, ideas coming from the past. But we have this certain, you know, there is this problem, and for a lot of us feel, okay, if only we could feel interconnectedness and feel that interconnectedness was okay, we'd be all right. So but then, you know, September 11th kind of blew a hole in that.
1: So your point is that the fundamental question of Buddhism which is suffering. Mm-hmm.
0: They're asking different questions. Yes? Could you say more about William James and his interest in karma? He just, he, he mentioned it only briefly towards the end of the book. Saying just kind of on a personal note, you know, over the various theories that are out there from the various religions. This one seemed to make the most sense to him. But then he went on to add he said, I'm not sure I really understand it. But um, he himself you know, was a pragmatist. His idea of Truth and a lot of, it does have some interesting similarities with what the Buddha taught. That things are true because they're when they're useful. And if something is if, if something is really true, and if, if the truth is going to make a difference, let's say, because then it's something you really want to get interested in. If there are lots of truths out there that won't make any difference. Is the universe one? Is the universe not one? Is it eternal? Is it not eternal? The Buddha says these don't really make any difference. And so there is that parallel between James and. Um, and the Buddha on that particular topic. Yes?
1: I really
0: come from that Western point of view. Right, right. So mm. is quite fundamental. Yeah. And so, looking at that, look at mm-hmm. Well, you know, when the Buddha ta- he doesn't talk in terms of interconnectedness. He talks about you know, co- you know, dependent core rising. That there, there is kind of an interdependence here, but for him, that's suffering. Because it is so intricate and it's so dependent on so many different factors over which you have no control. Now, how can you? Unless you feel that there's some kind of providence out there that's going to take care of all of us eventually, no matter what we do. The Buddha doesn't mean, he said, you can't depend on that. He says, you've got to find, there, there's some way, the practice is to get the mind to a point where it doesn't depend on those, those things, where it's basically out of this dependent core rising. That's true happiness. Now, he offers that as a possibility, so you can do it. Here and Here and now. Here and now.
1: Yes. Mm-hmm. What would a the practice then look like in Northern California? Plus, one is aware of, of these influences. Would it be
0: sitting or going to Thailand for years? Well, just, just learning to catch yourself and okay, when these thoughts come up, okay, do I really believe that? I mean, I've been kind of programmed, and it's I don't say there's, there's an intentional programming going on, but there's this kind of. You know, it's like you know, fish growing up in the water. It's the water they, they swim in. But if you can sort of pull your mind back a little from, from those assumptions, say, okay, is this, is this really going to solve the problem of suffering? You know, and where are my assumptions getting in the way of my sort of getting back at my own essential ignorance and my own essential craving? Which are the issues? Because if you depend on the interconnectedness, it can make you happy. I mean, it's good as long as the dot-com bubble is going, you know. <laughs> and it's for me. It's always been interesting looking through Buddhist history that the theory of interconnectedness as being a good thing tends to come up in periods when society is pretty wealthy and among the wealthier members of the society. And probably the most blatant statement of that was backed by this um, Chinese monk Fatsang. He was in the Yen school. And he was selling this theory to, of all people, the emperor and empress of China, who were, you know, pretty well situated in it. <laughs> and they liked the idea of interconnectedness. But if you go talk to those people in Uzbekistan who are growing the cotton for our interconnected gap T-shirt, is it a good thing for them? Not very, not very good. And so you have to look, okay, basically the question comes down to where am I basing my happiness? Is it dependent on things that can change? Is it dependent on things that are out of my control? Is it dependent on things that are stressful? And this is you know, these, this is why the Buddha teaches these three characteristics: Your impermanence, stress, not self. Say, okay, if the things that I depend on have these characteristics, I'm setting myself up for a fall. And I've got to dig deeper down inside because there's something inside me that's not dependent on these things. That's what the practice looks like, no matter where you are. Yes. Well, I've always found that it's a good test for the sanity of an idea if I try to translate it into Thai and tell it to a Thai monk. (laughs) Or I tried explaining Freud to a Thai monk one time. (laughs) 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 And two weeks ago I tried to explain James to a Thai monk, and he looked at me. What? (laughs) Um, So that's that's their perspective. (laughs) Kind of, what? (laughs) <laughs> especially the, the whole business about you know, the divided sense of self we want to have the sense of integration, the sense of wholeness and that's going to solve our problems for them that's major delusion I mean, you, in, in the practice when you get the mind into good states of concentration there is this sense of wholeness that's just concentration okay? and there's never been any pretense that that's the end of the goal that's a path, you're trying to get this sense of wholeness this sense of integration through bringing the mind to a state of healthy concentration. But then you have to start taking that apart to see, okay, where are your false assumptions? Where are you depending on things that change? And you take that apart. You had a question?
1: Yeah, it seems, and I'd be curious to know what you think in reading James. He has a very practical approach, uh, essentially, Mm -hmm. if this makes your life better. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering... Is he saying the same thing as the Buddha, which is, you know, to end suffering? Is it just a difference in phrasing?
0: James doesn't say that you can put an end to suffering. He said you make your life better, but it's an it's unending process. You have to keep you know, being a good person, being a good person, being a curse until you finally drop dead. <laughs> but he says there, there, there's, there's no end point. Whereas the Buddha says, okay, there, there are these standards for putting in it into suffering. You can do that. It's, you know, it's an attainable goal. That's another big difference between Buddhism here and Buddhism over there. They're not ashamed to talk about goals. Um, for them, a goal is not an oppressive ideal that is placed on us that's going to make us miserable. It's an opportunity. It's a point that you can get to and then the job is finished. Um, I think they have a lot healthier attitude towards goals over there. We do. Oh, there's a question over here. Yeah. It's sort of looking at, yeah, where your attachments are that are, where you, where you are attached to things that are impermanent that are going to let you down. Basically. It doesn't have to be. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we can make this Western Buddhism too if we want, you know. that's yeah. not mm-hmm. 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 well I think they would talk about the attachments that keep you from you know, that keep you divided within yourself like you're attached to certain erotic ideas we'll learn how to overcome those
1: but there are other attachments
0: beyond that there are other attachments beyond that that's what the Buddha would say yeah. mm-hmm. even when you've got this perfectly integrated self there's still attachments there there's still suffering there and this is where he comes in so says okay this is where we've got to work yes say it is a necessary but it's not sufficient. Okay? You need to have metta practice. But I mean, you don't need to do the formal practice. Right, right, right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Find right, process. right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: But still, it, it wasn't dismissed um, as being um, a wrong
0: view. Oh, no, it's not wrong view at all. Yeah. But, but again, metta is not... like the point we make over here, though, that it's you, you create that sense of unity. You, know, you need it in order to function properly. But then, okay, once you're there, that's not the end of the problem. So it, it's a necessary step in the practice that you develop a sense of goodwill starting for yourself and for people around you. Um, and they do they do talk about the, you know, the sense of sympathy that arises. But at the same time, the sense of interconnectedness, it's when they talk about interconnectedness, they often talk about that doctrine of karma. Which are, these are two doctrines that we don't usually put together, but over there they put together all the time. In the sense that you know what you do to other people is going to come back. So you've got to be very careful. So it's not just a sense of you know unity or a sense of oneness, but also a sense of responsibility that goes along with that as well. But in either case, it's, it's not the end of the it's not the end of the path. And I think that's where we tend to sort of truncate things. That we get to the sense of unity and say. Fine, got it made. <laughs> and, and and the Buddha is saying, No, there's more. Yeah, there's more. Yes. Oh, definitely, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, everybody brings misconceptions. Asians bring misconceptions to the Dharma as well. I mean, we don't have the, <laughs> the monopoly on that. <laughs> it's, just, it's, you know, it's just a different, different set of misconceptions. And it's, you know, it's, it's up to the teacher to, to sense, okay, where are these people coming from? And try to use what's useful in those misconceptions to sort of bring them in and then sort of peel the misconceptions away as they grow. That's the duty of a good teacher. Thank you, thank you very much.